Tim Riley. I'm one of the pastors here at COV, and we do have the opportunity to open God's Word and allow the Word to really read us as we put it into practice, as it transforms us and changes us, and as God grows us to look more like Him as we obey Him for the right reasons. Knowing God's will for our lives may be the biggest question that most of us have. In fact, I've known many people, I would assume that if you are a Christian, you identify as a Christian, you at some point have gone, what is God's will for my life? And if you come into this place and you're yet to identify yourself with Christ, maybe you've also had that question, maybe you don't necessarily know God yet, but you believe that there's some will that should supersede yours. I really think it's great when people consider and they think about what God's will is, because generally that means the focus is being taken off of them. But I think generally we look for God's will with any and uh, anywhere possible, but where it actually resides, which is in His Word. I'd like to begin with the main point of the sermon today that we're going to go back to a bunch of times, and it doesn't get to be your takeaway. Just telling you that now. All right, here is the main point of the sermon. The will of God is revealed in the Word of God, written by the Spirit of God. The will of God is revealed in the Word of God, written by the Spirit of God. And I share that because today we're going to be challenged by God's Word. So let's pick up where we left off last week, where Jude was describing what the false teachers who had snuck their way into the church of the living God were like. Here's what he starts with in verse 12. These people are blemishes at your love feast. I think of uh, bugs on your windshield. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. This is a burn, guys. And that doesn't sound very encouraging, and I don't think it's supposed to be, because those who pervert the truth of God are called out throughout Scripture, throughout the writings of John, the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul. Consistently, they are being challenged because these, these people are like terrorists in the church. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, attempting to kill and destroy the souls of many. But there's this tension if we are found in Christ, if we are a Christian, we've been found in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we cannot lose this gift that God has given us. But that doesn't mean we don't contend against these fortune tellers that try to pervert the truth of the Word. Because if we don't, some of these people that hear this false teaching will be misguided. They'll be led astray. And the church of Jesus Christ has a responsibility to contend, but it also has a responsibility to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our responsibility as the church of the living God is to make disciples, not of us, but of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't make disciples of Jesus, these false teachers will influence and make disciples of their own false, evil teaching. These false teachers are stains on Christ's bride, the church. It is making itself known by its standing out and their contrast to the truth. Jude mentions the love feast where God's people would eat together. They would remember Christ's sacrifice in communion. And these false teachers are shepherds who feed only themselves, and they only care about what brings them pleasure and want to take care of themselves first and foremost. They are clouds without rain, blown by the wind, autumn trees without fruit. They are worthless, but they seem to be promisers of big things. 
They promise a lot. They deliver nothing that is actually spiritually redeemed. Uprooted trees without any fruit that are twice dead burn. In fact, Jesus, as he's concluding the Sermon on the Mount, the most popular sermon in history, says this in Matthew 7, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Wow. I don't know if there's a more profound statement to help us recognize where somebody's at than this. We prejudge people all the time, right? Like, we can admit this. We prejudge people. Just me? Some of you? Melissa, me? Okay, praise God. A few of us. Hallelujah. We prejudge people all the time. We see someone, and we think we know them because of some external identifying mark on that person. But knowing someone has a lot more to do with spending time with them than just a glance, just looking at them once. And the false teachers had fruit that over time was rotting and was rancid and disgusting in a spiritual sense. So he goes on, Jude says, verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Like a wild wave, they seem to be magnificent in some fashion, but... They wreak havoc on the truth because they pervert and distract from the path of which God points us to. They are like a shooting star that has a momentary moment of brilliance, but then fades away. They don't last. They're not fruitful. They're barren. They are worthless. They are liars. The blackest darkness is reserved for them. Selah. Deal with it. Verse 14, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. He said, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of, uh, to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Do you see a theme? And a few weeks ago, we talked about what ungodly means. It means to be without worship. And Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, again, he quotes something that is not found in Scripture, in the 66 books of Scripture that Christians believe are God's actual inerrant word as it was originally written from Genesis to Revelation. He's quoting outside of this. This is known as the book of Enoch. Now, Enoch was a true person. He was in the Bible. He was the seventh generation away from Adam. But what Jude does is he points out the truth that was found in that book. So does that mean there's truth in the book of Enoch? Yes, whenever it's in line with Scripture. Does that mean that what Enoch wrote was like Scripture, it was infallible? Not at all. The way Scripture was written, we know that it doesn't contradict itself at all. It contradicts us. But there is truth outside of Scripture. But it's only truth if it's in line with Scripture. Do you guys see that subtle difference? The Word of God is living and active, yet it's not changing. But we don't experience it being living and active unless we put it into practice. We must put it into practice. We must interpret it correctly. We don't add or take away from it. And so we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul's writing to the young pastor Timothy, who's still probably older than I currently am. Yay! 2 Timothy chapter 3. He starts, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. We'll get back to that. 
And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, those who have trusted Jesus Christ, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The purpose of the word, the purpose of this bound book that many of us have is so that you would know Christ that you would know Christ and then you would show Christ off because he's changed you. And by knowing him and showing him off and obeying him, you would grow to look more like him. And we are trained in righteousness. We have received our right standing before God, not because of anything we've done, fully because of what Christ has done, what he's accomplished by living the life we couldn't, dying the death on the cross that we should have, physically rising from the dead, And we receive this truth through faith in Christ Jesus because God has given us grace. But we are, even though we have right standing before God, we are, if we're a Christian, being refined and, here's a word we use a lot, sanctified to look more like the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who gifted us his righteousness. But what Jude says even if quoting a non-biblical resource is in line with Scripture that has been God-breathed and it is useful for training. Let me show you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes this. This is in Scripture. It says, And give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Then he goes on in chapter 3, and he says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you may be blameless and holy in the presence of our Lord God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In the book of Enoch, we see that he points out that Christ will come back with a ton of his holy ones, and we see that in Scripture as well. And this is why we are so Bible-saturated at COV. It's why we don't get up and preach our opinion. We look at the Word of God. We allow the Word of God to read us, and we trust what God has to say. But man, it is so easy to get it twisted and to worship the book and to justify ourselves by how good we understand things. And we want to fight against that as well. Because the Bible truly comes alive. The Word of God comes alive as we obey the God of the Word. So some of you just know intellectually that the Word is living and active because the Bible says that. But some of you have actually experienced this because you've put into practice the Word of God, and it truly is made alive in you when you do that. And we, what we ought to contend against are people who try to teach a false Jesus to people. And Jude lays out what they're like, what they do, and what's going to happen to them. Verse 16, oh, this is going to get personal, guys. Sorry, not really. These people are grumblers and fault finders. Anybody? Just kidding. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. Grumblers and fault finders. Uh, Have any of you played poker? You can be honest. All right, praise God. There is a, I've never (laughs) praised God for poker, but cool. Uh, There is a thing called a tell when you're playing poker. All right, some of you like don't have a very good poker face, if that makes sense. You're like, uh, right? Like, and I don't know if there is a bigger tell that someone is a false teacher than if they're identified as a grumbler or fault finder. They grumble at the gospel. Oh, do we have to hear about the gospel again? Oh, gosh. 
Yes, you do. In fact, I was at a church where I led a ministry in my less sanctified days, if you will, where a guy came up to me, or a person, I'll say a person because now I, it doesn't, it was a guy. A guy walks up to me and he says, you know, there are more things to teach other than just the gospel. Here was my response, a little less sanctified. I said, yep, and when I think you understand it, I'll stop teaching it. Now, that was a lie because I haven't stopped teaching and proclaiming the gospel till this day, nor do I plan to stop proclaiming the gospel because we don't graduate from the gospel, but it is the foundation to why we have our being according to Acts chapter 17. So to grumble, here's where it gets personal. To be identified as a grumbler, to grumble is to show that his grace isn't sufficient. Oh, I'm not saying that you don't complain ever to anyone ever, but, what rem but remember what you've been forgiven of before you grumble. Do not allow your identity to be found in the fact that you're always unhappy, you're unjoyous, you're unworshipful, and you tell everyone about it. That's what he's speaking about. They are identified by their grumbling. They are grumblers, and they never once realize they are never actually grateful for all that has been given to them. So they're grumblers, but they're also fault finders. Now, it's been said, it's a little hokey, but it's been said that if you point your finger at someone, you've got three fingers pointing back at you, and that's true. But here's the biblical understanding. We are all guilty before the Lord, every single one of us. And yet he gives us Jesus to be made innocent. Like, I don't know if I can make the gospel simpler than that. You're guilty, God intervenes, you're made innocent, not because of you, because of Jesus. Hallelujah. That is a good word. And so these false teachers, they identify themselves by following their own evil desires. Now, if you hear me say that and you think that that means if someone sins, they're obviously a false teacher and not a Christian, you're a moronic legalist that doesn't understand the words of God, all right? I'm just putting that out there. You can, we can put that on a meme, okay? But if they are identified constantly by choosing the opposite of what the Spirit of God does in his people, constantly, mostly, a lot, I think it's right to question where someone stands with the Lord and you ought to pray if they're teaching within your church. You ought to come to leadership and say, hey, I'm noticing this thing with this teacher. They're making it about them. If it's me, you better go to the elders. Raise your hand if you're an elder in this church. Raise your hand. Mike, Stephen, we got Mark, we got Kyle, we got John. The only person we're missing is Daniel, and I'm an elder, but they're my boss, not individually, but corporately. And so if there is a problem with the teaching, you go to them if you haven't already gone to me. If you, you should go to me first, but if I'm unwilling to talk with you about it, you go to them. Why do I point that out? Because false teaching is such a contaminant in the church of the living God. It contaminates, it gets everywhere. And lastly, these false teachers, they boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. You know people like this, don't you? Don't you? And sometimes it's like the, the like backhanded compliment kind of stuff, right? Oh, so let me, let me say this. A prideful Christian is an oxymoron, okay? I didn't say a prideful Christian is a moron. No, all right, I'll go with that. But a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't happen. But listen, we're all still in process. 
But someone who takes credit for what God does, that's a really, really big tell. It's easy to hear this message and think two things. One, that you need to be on guard. Every time you hear something that you haven't heard before, you need to go through that person's trash and find out what evil things they're into. Listen, garbage man, relax. That isn't what we're saying. But if we really want to know if someone is teaching us something that is false or maybe even shallow, we have to be in the Word ourselves. Did you know that? We need to be in the Word of God ourselves. We have to obey, be obeying the God of Word, God of the Word, by applying the Word of God to our lives. If we aren't, we'll become one of the most legalistic churches ever who thinks because we teach the Bible, we're good. Listen, I'm growing spiritually as the lead pastor of this church, and I don't say that to, to I know many people in this room that are growing a lot faster than I am, and I'm not going to covet your fast growth. It generally means that you've had circumstances that are going to grow you even more than I have. But I am growing. And you know why I know that? Not because I know more Greek words. I do. Not because I have a much higher view of Scripture. I do. It's because God time and time and time again has given me opportunities to obey him. And after I didn't obey him the first time, he gave me another shot. And after I didn't obey him that time, maybe I obeyed him the 40th time. Or let's be real, maybe I obeyed him the 500th time. But eventually I do because I'm pursuing the perfect one who justified me. That's one way you can hear this message. Got to go through their trash. The other way you can hear this message is, well, he's not talking about me. I don't get up and preach and teach in front of people. Bro, sis, check yourself before you wreck your church community. I have to constantly check my heart, church. And I'm the pastor who gets, let's be real, I get paid to be a Christian. What's up? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Stupid. But I'll take it. I mean, praise God. But I get paid to be a Christian. I get to study the Word of God all week. And if that's all I did, that's not all I do. But listen, I'm susceptible. And if I'm susceptible, I guarantee you are. I don't want any of us thinking that we have arrived theologically or that we're not sinning anymore or that we're not in desperate need of grace within this community. Paul says to the church in Corinth, oh, the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves. That's where Ice Cube got it. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? <laughs> Unless, of course, you failed the test. Wow. I know how wicked I am. I know how immoral my urges and desires are. I know how insubordinate I am to God and His commands. And I know how irreverent I am to God with my thoughts and the way I live. So I have to examine myself. And the fact that I was wrestling with it helped me realize that those who aren't actually false teachers, who aren't actually false prophets, they never, those who are will never wrestle with these things because they're so sure of something that they believe even though they've never looked at the word to see if that's what God says. But then Jude seems to change his tone. I can't guarantee he's changing his tone, but I think he is. Verse 17, but dear friends, beloved homies, remember, sorry, 
Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. What did they foretell? Well, they took the Old Testament and they explained how it pointed all to Jesus. They explained how it talked about what Jesus would do and what he would accomplish and what he would fulfill. But they also told of of the fact that there will be scoffers, people who jeer and mock the faith. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you must have voted for that person. Oh, you must do this. Oh, you. Being a Christian is about making your identity in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with who you vote for, has nothing to do with which team you root for, unless it's. uh, Never mind. (laughs) Not going to do it. Being a Christian has everything to do with trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your sole means of justification. And here's what Jude says that the the apostles said. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires, their unworshipful desires. And our unworshipful desires are something that God is in the business of changing in us. Did you know that? Because I can look at faces in this room and see people who worship, and I went, I remember when you didn't worship. I remember when you were your own God, and God intervened, hallelujah. But listen, he changes us as we follow Jesus and are dominated by the Holy Spirit, but this does not happen without effort. It's done through grace-driven effort that comes out of a heart to want to obey, even if you aren't feeling it. But because you love God and you want the glory of God to be revealed, you, I, we obey Him. Jude says the apostles spoke of these last times in the book of Acts. Uh, Another name for the book of Acts are the actions of the apostles led by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul gives a warning to the elders and overseers in Ephesus about what's going to happen after he leaves. And I remember studying this with our elders. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32. Keep watch over yourselves and of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know (laughs) that after I leave, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number of men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember, remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to you Commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, those who are made holy, those who have trusted Christ and are growing. Paul told the elders of Ephesus that even those among them would distort the truth. He didn't say they might come in. He said they're coming right after he leaves. And it is so easy, church, I'm talking to us, to get off track. It is so easy to emphasize what we should not emphasize. This is documented in the book of Acts, and we are, con- we are told to contend and defend the faith by, well, Paul says it to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. Peter says it to the early church. John says it in First and Second John. And there is this common theme of the apostles warning those in the church that if they attempt to distort the truth, if they emphasize the wrong thing, the Lord will have at them. 
And unfortunately, what most people do within the church of the living God even today is we devalue Jesus Christ. We stop emphasizing what a big deal he is. Sometimes we'll teach some work that will save us, and that de-emphasizes the supremacy of Christ rather than Jesus' work through his perfect life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Verse 19, these false teachers are the ones who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. That's the New Testament version of you're an uncircumcised Philistine, all right? That's essentially what he just said. You're, you suck. And these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. These are the people who divide you. It isn't those with the Spirit. See, listen, the Spirit doesn't divide. He unifies, but He unifies in the gospel. But if your unity is in something other than the gospel, it's not really unity, as the Bible teaches. But those without the Spirit of God will act in ungodly, unworshipful desires and in actions from natural instincts after, rather than the Spirit of God leading them as we abide in Him. So listen, the Holy Spirit isn't just the third person of the triune God. He is the seal of our salvation. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. And you, Christian, were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If the Spirit of God resides in you, hear me, if the Spirit of God resides in you, you are sealed by God and for God as His possession. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who makes us holy, the Spirit of God who makes us holy, sets us apart. He is the guarantee of our eternity with God. But being led by the Spirit, we've talked about poker face and the tells of those who are false teachers, being led by the Spirit is the largest tell that you are actually included in Christ. No one can do the things of the Spirit without the Spirit residing in them. So Romans chapter 8, 8 through 10, Paul's speaking to the church in Rome, and as he's speaking to the church in Rome, he says it this way, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Hallelujah. And the Spirit of God Man, the Holy Spirit, he seems to be a very polarizing subject, but listen, the Holy Spirit is not a subject. He is the third person of, the, of God, the Trinity. See, there is God the Father, there is God the Son, there is God the Holy Spirit, and he lives inside of those who by faith have trusted Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is spoken about so often in Scripture. In fact, He was the one who wrote Scripture through human beings. Remember, the will of God is revealed by the Word of God that was written by the Spirit of God. Here's what it says, 2 Peter chapter 1, 20-21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy, no spiritual utterance of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. 
For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in Mark chapter 12, 35 through 36, these are Jesus' own words documented by by Mark, who heard this from Peter. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. See, Jesus quotes the psalmist David in Psalm chapter 110, and he says that while David was speaking by the Holy Spirit, so back to that verse we read real quick a while ago, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16a, all Scripture is God-breathed, from Genesis to Revelation. So not only did the Holy Spirit pen the Scriptures through messed up people that we read today, but what, let's take a look at what else the Holy Spirit does according to His Word. Here we go, John 14, 26, good luck trying to write these down, John 14, 26, He is the Helper. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and chapter 4, verse 30, he is the seal of our salvation. He intercedes for the believer in prayer, Romans 8, verse 26. He renews and regenerates Christians, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. The Spirit baptizes believers into Christ's body, the church, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Believers receive a new birth through the power of the Spirit, John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. The Holy Spirit provides joy in tough circumstances according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. The Holy Spirit points us towards our hope in Christ in Romans 15, verse 13. The Holy Spirit fights against the flesh by giving us the, the domination of the Spirit to pursue righteousness, Galatians chapter 5, and we can grow in the fruit of the Spirit, the end of Galatians chapter 5. Believers are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, really to be dominated by the Spirit by yielding full control to the Holy Spirit and not submitting to the will of our flesh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The Holy Spirit gives gifts that edify and help the body of Christ to make much of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, John 16, 8. He testifies about who Jesus is, John 15, 26. He removes the veil so people can see who Jesus is and provides freedom for the believer who has trusted Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 through 17. And the Holy Spirit provides wisdom for the believer by bringing to mind God's very word and the way we can understand it and obey it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. The Holy Spirit does so much more. But I want you to have a brief overview of how important he is as he resides in the believer. In the Old Testament, Israel was instructed to build a temple to the house of the Spirit of the Lord. And because of Christ and what he accomplished, what Jesus did for you and for I, we have, if we've trusted Jesus as our sole means of salvation, we are now the temple where the Spirit of the Lord resides. He is the seal of our salvation. He is the guarantee of our future eternity with him. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple, Christians. So I say all of that because I think we have two extremes in the church. We forget about the Holy Spirit completely 
And because we don't understand him, we decide to sweep him under the rug theologically. And for some, we treat the Holy Spirit as if he is the only important part of the Trinity. And so all we do is exalt him. We feel the need to give him credit because other people feel to, they, we feel like they leave him out. Listen, the Holy Spirit does so much, and he is part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But his work is to exalt Jesus. To enlighten those who do not yet know Jesus for who he is, to remove the veil and point out our sin while giving us the solution in Jesus Christ. In John 16, verses 12 through 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I have so much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, Numa, comes. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Earlier on, Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Jesus speaks these words to his disciples and points out that it is the Holy Spirit who will remind them of all that Jesus had taught and said. And we get the benefit of the New Testament from the teaching, documentation, and writings of the apostles who were dominated by the Holy Spirit. A great theologian who's still around today, J.I. Packer, he puts it this way, in his book called Keep in Step with the Spirit, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry at this or any time in the Christian era is to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without the Spirit doing the work, you don't know who Jesus is. So church, we honor the Holy Spirit by exalting the Son because that is what the Holy Spirit does in his people. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, we'll get to that, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. This verse, I can see totally misconstrued, totally misinterpreted by so many people, but you, dear friends, Jude says, beloved, not those he was speaking about who were misleading the people as false teachers, but those who are in the church he's writing to, he says, build yourselves up. This kind of seems counterintuitive for a Christian, doesn't it? See, Jude in verse 16 just got done saying that these false teachers boast about themselves, and here he tells those who are his friends in the faith to build themselves up. Here is what, we, here is what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean boast yourselves up so other people think you're more spiritual. To boast about yourself or to tell someone, uh, to, to basically try to convince other people that you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. This is not about self-esteem. But building yourselves up with Christ as your salvation. Because we do not graduate from the gospel, but the depths and the riches of his grace are revealed in his story and his narrative and his completed work found in the Holy Scriptures. 
Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners, you are no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built, my emphasis, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. He's that piece that when you pull it, the Jenga building falls down. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The prophets are what represent the Old Testament. And apostles represent the New Testament. And they are now implying in these very scriptures that we are, God's people, God's church, we are the temple for the Holy Spirit. God's people together are what the house that his spirit dwells in, and the entire building is foundational, founded, and found in Jesus Christ, all of it. But building ourselves up is to continue to pursue Christ and his character revealed in the scriptures so we can know God more and more. Not know about him. If all you want to do is know his stats, you missed it. But I want to know him. I want to know what his character's like. And it is really easy. It is so easy. It is incredibly easy to spend all your time reading the Bible to attempt to pass some spiritual test that you're never going to be asked about. But when the Spirit of God is not being squelched and we read the Word out of joy to know our God better and better, all of a sudden we start to change. So we build ourselves up, not by pursuing Christ and the knowledge of Him that surpasses our feelings and worldly wisdom out of have to, but out of want to. We pursue him because we want to know him. Peter says this at the beginning of his second letter. He says, Simon Peter, a servant, he's talking about himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those whom through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Look at this, verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So verse 20 of Jude, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. To pray in the Holy Spirit is about praying the will of God. How do I know this? Because the will of God is revealed in the Word of God that was written by the Spirit of God. And this is in conflict with trying to either change God's mind or impose our own will above His Word. To pray in the Holy Spirit is to pray with His will in mind. Why? because the will of God is revealed in the word of God that was written by the spirit of God. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our heart knows the, minds of the, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Keep yourself in God's love. Jude 20, 21. 
Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So Jude has said to those he is writing to, fellow believers, share in this common salvation of one faith. That's how he wanted to start the letter. It was entrusted to all believers that have trusted Jesus that we ought to, this is for those of us who claim Jesus, we ought to build ourselves up. We ought to not slow down our pursuing of Jesus Christ, who is the foundation of our faith. We ought to pray in the Holy Spirit, superseding our will is God's will as we pray. And now Jude tells the Christians to keep themselves in God's love as we wait for the promise of eternity with the Lord forever. What does he mean to keep ourselves in God's love? Oh, man, this could be totally misconstrued, but Jude points out that we ought to continually be pursuing Christ and the knowledge of him through his word and to pray in the Holy Spirit, to be in constant communication with God, seeking his will, to be aligned with him, and to look expectantly and hopefully towards our future eternal life in eternity with God through our trust in the finished work of Christ in our lives. This is so applicable. Keeping yourself in God's love is about perseverance, not one that you try really hard to manufacture, but the one that happens to us as the Spirit leads us and illuminates God's Word and gives us the faith to actually trust and obey His Word. I believe that God's will for His children is to bring glory to Him. That's what I think God's will is for our lives, if you've trusted Jesus Christ. And the main way we see that in our Christian life is through Christ-likeness. Our sanctification process of looking more and more like Him, to grow more in the fruit of the Spirit, to enjoy the fact that God is constantly changing and transforming us through experiences and opportunities to live out our faith in front of the world who doesn't know Him. He says in verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. So now Jude isn't speaking about the false teachers. He's not speaking to the people who, or he is speaking to the Christians within the church, but he's talking about the people who have been misled by the false teachers. And they may have doubt because of it. He says, be merciful. Do not give others what they deserve. Has anyone given anyone what they deserve this week? Just me? All right, Max, Ray, praise God. Don't treat their doubt as their judgment, but care for, point out truth, love and pray for them. Jude constantly speaks in threes of application and judgment. I could co totally nerd out in that, but I don't think that's the point here. He uses three types of people who are affected by this false teaching and what we as the church of Jesus Christ ought to do for them. Be merciful to doubters. Be compassionate that they are yet to fully understand the depths of God's grace like we understand it right. That was kind of sarcasm. As they have been misled by these false teachers who have influenced them away. And then he says, verse 23, he says, save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Save others. <laughs> okay. Um, who saves people? Jesus, right? We get this. And yet he says, save others. But we know we cannot save anyone. We cannot force our will upon anyone, but we can beg God to save those that are in our midst, can't we? 
But what Jude speaks of, speaks of here is teaching, discussing, and dialogue with those who have been misled, essentially snatching them out of the fire as this false teaching would be leading them into. Defend and contend your faith to those who are in the church but have bought into a false gospel that has lowered Jesus' supremacy. And then he says, to show others mercy mixed with fear. Fear of what? Reverence for the fact that false teaching can affect and contaminate any of us. And so we attempt to be compassionate to these people, but do not allow yourself to get this false teaching on you, if you will. And it's a lot easier than you think. There's a lot of stuff we say within the church of Jesus Christ that we think is biblical, but it was just traditions of man. And a lot of what we think has been taught because people misinterpreted the scriptures and then we just regurgitated it. See, we really want to be a people who think biblically. It's why we preach the Bible. It's why we're willing to teach the hard stuff in the text. I've had a lot of hard conversations this past month as we've been studying Jude. And listen, I have a hard conversation almost every day, but it's multiplied a ton because of this book. And we want the Word of God which reveals the will of God, which was written by the Spirit of God, to be the thing that we look towards, not our own feelings or emotions, but we allow God to say what He wants to say. So we'll interpret and emphasize the correct things so that we don't get off track like every letter in the New Testament warns against. The people would understand that, man, the churches that are being talked to in the New Testament were 20 to 60 years away from Jesus rising from the dead, and those people got off track. What makes us think that 2,000 years later, we're not going to get off track all the time? So don't let false teaching be entertained. Hate even the clothes that were contaminated by the false teaching. It's like going into Vegas when there's smoke everywhere, and then you leave, and you're like, why do I still smell like the casino? There's a lot of, like, gambling references in my sermon today. That's weird. Don't allow false teaching to be entertained. Look to God, look to the God of the Word, look to the Word of God to grow in your understanding of who He is by not just reading it, but by putting it into practice for the glory of the one who saved you. Worship team, you can come on up. Here's the last thing I want to say. <laughs> yeah, right. The Spirit illuminates the Scripture. So my request of you is that you would seek the will of God revealed in the Word of God, written by the Spirit of God, and as you read and obey, that you would experience the peace and joy of following the one true God as He's revealed Himself to the world through his word.